I'm Agnes Kurtzels. I'm Whitney Winter. And my name is Claire Horning. You're listening to the Ag Knowledge Podcast. Welcome back to Ag Knowledge. Today we're talking about conservation and some current events. I talked to Harley Phillips with Pheasants Forever. I'll just let him introduce himself. Yeah, I mean, my name's Harley Phillips. Grew up on a dairy farm outside of Clarkson, Nebraska, and then um, went to college at UNL. And while I was there, I started working with Game and Parks on the wildlife management areas near Genoa, and then eventually graduated from UNL with a degree in fisheries and wildlife management with a minor in water science, and then ended up moving to Ohio in 2019. My wife took a job out there, so I became a farm bill biologist out in Ohio, and and moved back to Nebraska at the beginning of August, and now I'm a Pheasants Forever Farm Bill biologist here in Nebraska. Did you grow up around wildlife at all? A little bit. I mean, my grandparents and my uncle was the main reason on why I decided to get into the wildlife field, because, I mean, I'll be honest, I got into it because I enjoyed fishing and hunting. And being on the dairy farm, I had very limited time to do that, and so I very well took those opportunities when I had them. But I mean, I had exposure to some management and management pastures on the farm, so. Were you involved growing up at all in conservation? Were you part of Fins Forever or Ducks Unlimited or, you know, in WTF? Nope, I wasn't a part of any of those. Okay. Um, my grandparents were, though. My grandpa's still a member with Pheasants Forever. Is there anything else that led you to become a wildlife biologist? Um, just kind of my, my hobbies. My hobbies is what... I decided, um, I'll be honest, when I first went to school, I wanted to be a game warden and until I figured out a little bit more of those details. And I'm like, yeah, I actually want to do good things for wildlife, so mm-hmm. I'll put, try and put habitat on the ground. So what kind of education do you have? What does your degrees entail? Uh, I mean, my degrees entail a lot of like management courses. Like I have, I was unique at UNL. I split perfectly right in between wildlife management and fisheries management. So I have a lot of ichthyology and other courses that direct just to fish and dealing with fish habitat, like stream ecology and stuff like that. And I also have a bunch of courses I took that did with wildlife management, wildlife ecology, different courses like that. So what does your job all entail as a biologist? Yeah, my job with Pheasants Forever is I help basically put habitat on the ground. I go out, I talk to landowners, talk to them either about parts of their field that's not doing that good in production and convince them, hey, let's try and put some habitat on the ground. Or just if there's a landowner that approaches me with a concern that he wants to see more pheasants, turkeys, deer, I mean, you name it, I try and help with. I just then after I talk to them and come up with a good plan of what we can do for his landscape, what habitat I think will work best, then go back to the office, talk to NRCS and FSA, and come up with a CRP project that they can do, a practice, and then once that gear gets going, I'll help create the plan from beginning to end. I help write the conservation plan, which is basically, these are the steps we're going to have the landowner do to put habitat on the ground. And do you guys have, like, programs for CRP grass that farmers can utilize? Yeah, uh, a lot of the practices are grass practices. And so there's different practices, like helping create native prairies. Uh, PF itself, Pheasants Forever itself, actually has uh, pathways for wildlife and corners for wildlife. That it's basically if there's a pivot corner close to a grassland or a center pivot that has corners, we can enroll that into a special 
program and help landowners create little pockets of habitat. Okay, so how much of a difference would that make with the corners? Does that make a lot of difference? Yeah, it actually helps quite a bit. Uh, a lot of people don't think that just maybe a quarter acre or an acre size plot will make much of a difference, but you got to think of it this way. A lot of our big habitat areas are in a sea of agriculture, so if we just help create these little corridors, in a sense, to help get them to different big pockets, the wildlife, that tremendously helps a long way. So do you enjoy your work environment, and do you want to explain kind of what it entails? Absolutely. I enjoy my work environment every day. Most days it doesn't even feel like work. But um, my typical day is go to the office and talk to the office staff, see if there's anything that needs done, like high priority. If not, then I go and do site visits because there's always a bunch of fields that need visited, either to make sure landowners are doing what they're doing on their CRP fields or even help finding ones to enroll. And so go out do these site visits and while I'm on these site visits it's if it's already a CRP field then I just go out there look at the different plant community that's out there figure out how many different species I can find and then I report back to the office. And so what is the area that you cover? Yeah my coverage area is Stanton, Cumming, Wayne, Madison, and Pierce County. Do you know off the top of your head how many people you work with? I do not. I mean some days I can well some weeks I should say I can talk to 15, 20 landowners and some days, some weeks it's kind of slow. And is there like a certain season where you're more busier than others? Yeah, uh, my busy season is actually about fall time. So, well, it kind of goes into July. So July, August, and September is my busy time. That's when CRP enrollment is getting towards its end for sign up and that's when we have a lot of a big push of new contracts re-enrolling contracts so I'm pretty busy those few okay. months writing plans talking to landowners and then help in October November kind of just helping them clean up anything that they still have questions on and then early spring I go out and do a bunch of monitoring reviews on already established CRP ground. So are the farmers that you're working with typically older or do you have some like younger generation? I'd say it's all age group. I've talked to the older generation. I've talked to generation same age as me. It, it just don't matter. I help find the people that are interested or they f end up finding me too. So. so what do you enjoy most about your job? The thing I enjoy most about my job is just being outdoors. Outdoors, because every day I go out there, I never know what I'm going to see. And some days it's a surprise, some days it's not. But that's probably the best part of my job is I get to be outdoors. Do you travel a lot then? Yeah. Okay. Yep, I'm on the road uh, quite a bit. I probably put, on average, over 100 miles a day. Are there some things people should be aware of in the field of agriculture? So any like specific issues that you advocate for or that need to be advocated for? I guess just kind of the big thing is I know there's been a lot of concern lately with the pollinators. And so that's kind of just one thing I help is a lot of forb diversity and a lot of wildflowers in a field will definitely help those pollinators. I know water quality is another one, but um, I guess for agriculture, I, I don't really go out and really find a whole lot of issues mm -hmm. on that. I kind of deal more on the conservation side of things, helping put habitat on the ground. Is there any issues in conservation that need to be brought to awareness? I mean, just kind of the normal issue is there's not a lot of habitat out there. I mean, my grandpa will tell me back when he was my age, there was habitat everywhere. There was 
pheasants, deer, turkeys all over the place. And I mean, we still have pretty good high deer populations, but the pheasant and quail and turkeys, those populations are steadily climbing, but it's definitely not what it was when my grandpa was my age. And so that's kind of just the concern is just got to find more habitat. Mm -hmm. Usually, typically, the best lands are the least productive lands. Uh, so the heavy, sandy soils or the bottom ground uh, that, in a sense, may or may not flood. But with CRP also, in a sense, you're kind of a farmer for wildlife. You got to do something to a CRP field every year, too, to help keep the weed pressure out. Mm-hmm. So are the lands around here in northwest um, Nebraska, is a lot of it that could be taken to CRP or not? I mean, it kind of just matters. Like Stanton County has a lot of heavy sandy soils, which and then um, you get a county like Cumming County and it's heavy clay soils. And so it just kind of just all matters that I know Cumming County doesn't have the highest of CRP numbers, but I mean, they're still up there. And so I mean, I wouldn't say there's any certain spot in my coverage area that's good or bad. I would say it's all, all to me, it could be habitat at some point, but I mean, you also still got to have your ag production. That That's something that I won't ever say needs to go away mm-hmm. either. Yeah. A nice compromise or split is perfectly fine for me. Do you want to talk about some of the programs that Pheasants Forever has? Yeah, I mean, some of the programs are the Pathways for Wildlife, Corners for Wildlife, and with the Corners for Wildlife, like I mentioned earlier, it's with Pivot Corners. Mm-hmm. Or if there's a center pivot and then, say, the landowner across the fence doesn't have a pivot, well, he's still close enough to qualify because there's a center pivot right there. Mm-hmm. He can put a portion of his property into Corners for Wildlife. The Pathways for Wildlife, that one can take a little bit bigger sections that we can put into. There is also the Grassland Initiative Program, which helps restore native prairies. But that one, the funding gets taken up pretty quickly. Um, So if anyone has any interest in that, the sooner they get a hold of me or another biologist, the sooner we can try and help them out with that. Okay. Do you want to just recite your contact information? Yeah. My phone number is 402-276-1638. And my email address is hphillips at pheasantsforever.org. Another program that Pheasants Forever helps out with is the Open Fields and Waters program, which is a partnership between Pheasants Forever and Nebraska Game and Parks. And it basically allows a landowner to take a piece of his property and help turn into public ground to offer more hunting access and more opportunities for younger hunters or even older hunters to come out and do a little bit of hunting on their ground. And it also can do for fish, too, that, for instance, if a farmer has a fish pond on it, he can enroll that portion, too. Does a farmer is there are they in charge of like restocking if the population gets too low nope nope they're not in charge of any restocking or that it's just kind of um in a sense game and parks and pheasants forever kind of monitors those areas and if it's one that i'm never really known of one to get too much hunting pressure but i mean we kind of just monitor it Mm -hmm. and make sure that it's still good quality habitat out there is there anything else that you'd like to discuss today i mean i guess just kind of ended is I know there's always a lot of questions and so if anyone has ever any questions or concerns me or another biologist will be more than happy to help and as one of my old bosses said just the way I keep going into each day is do good things for wildlife I mean to me that's just a good way to start the day is figure out what you can do and 
I mean, there's also, if someone necessarily does not qualify for a program, I can more than welcome go out there and just offer technical support, give them advice. I mean, just because they're in a pro- not in a program doesn't mean I can't help them. Uh, my job allows me to go out and anyone has an interest, concern, or question, I'm more than happy to help out. Thanks again, Harley. Um, do you guys know anything about conservation or Pheasants Forever? Um, yes, on the conservation, but I don't know much about Pheasants Forever. You know, the basics, I guess. Okay. The only thing I know about Pheasants Forever is a couple years ago when I attended the um, Exceptional Women's Conference at Northeast. That was actually the first time I met Whitney, fun fact. There was a, like, one of the breakout sessions was um, kind of, a Pheasants Forever speaker and they just talked about some different like conservation things that you could do in your own home and then they also talked about like the different programs they had so two of the big things they talked about were they talked about buffer strips which is kind of the transition from like a field to a ditch basically and then they also talked about having like natural plant life in your yard because that kind of promotes like pollination and like natural wildlife natural grasses and all that stuff and then they also kind of went through the different um avenues and contact information for the programs that they offer people as well. They have several uh, other programs other than like the buffer strips and native grasses. They have one that you can plant your corners of a uh, center pivot like cornfield or just um, field. Yeah, crop field. And it can be used as a like little habitat for anything that's going from like say, a public ground uh, next to your cropland. Mm. So it helps them just have something in between for habitat. So do you know how, like, Pheasants Forever got started and, like, what their whole mission is? So Pheasants Forever actually started back in 1982 because people saw a decline in the ringneck pheasant population. So it took all of the information of conservation and took it towards protecting enhancing the population as well as like other wildlife population through like habitat and improvement public awareness and education and then like land management policies which harley phillips talked about um for a bit and all of the programs that fens forever um allows farmers to enroll in and any landowner really and then they get financial help with those things don't they yes they can um I think almost all of their programs have some sort of financial program that you can enroll in. But even if you don't qualify for financial or if um, Harley gave this example, like you have a center pivot cropland and you actually own the section next to one, Mm -hmm. you can qualify even if you don't have a center pivot on your own because that's one of the programs they have is with the corners so you would qualify because you're adjacent to one okay cool so pheasants forever actually has more than 140,000 members spanning over 700 chapters and so they spend roughly 500 million on habitat projects um according to their website and it's more than 10 million acres in north america okay and they're U.S. based, correct? Like they're in yeah, the United they are. States. Okay, yeah. Cool. I don't think they're anywhere else. 
I didn't think so either, but I wasn't 100% sure, so yeah. figured I'd ask. But their, like, sister conservation organization is Quails Forever. Oh, see, I was, so. I was like, I knew there was another bird, and I was thinking... I was thinking of Ducks Unlimited, and I was like, that's not it. I know that's not it. <laughs> no. But I was like, I know it's another bird, and I know it's forever. Yeah. <laughs> so it's quails and pheasants forever. They're kind of like twins. Mm. So, But yes, Ducks Unlimited is another conservation organization. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. And then I also- they were just like gear. I didn't know they did conservation. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yep. And then there's also National Turkey- National Wild Turkey Federation, so NWTF, mm-hmm. which I'm also a part of. Um, I'm a part of Fence Forever. Part of all of these things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you have to have like a membership to be in these things? Yes, you do. Um, you enroll each year as a member, and almost all like organizations that do cons um, conservation. Yes, thank you. Have like a banquet each year to be like, hey, members, let's celebrate. And it usually has an auction and food and stuff like that where you can renew your memberships there and enroll in programs and a lot of people bring their kids and they have a raffle for like a lifetime hunting permit Mm. or um even like lifetime fishing or i think even mm, fur but i don't know if they still do that one do they um does the membership cost money i guess my question is like where does their funding come from um, so yes, the, you have to pay for their membership. Like, so associate membership is like $35, which is like your membership card. And I think you get enrolled into like their Pheasants Forever journal, which they send out, I think monthly, uh, seasonally. So like spring, summer, fall, winter. So is that just kind of like a newsletter to send out updates and stuff to the members? N- no, it's more like a magazine okay. kind of issue. But then they have, like, different levels of membership you can enroll in, and they have, like, different benefits. Okay. But then you can be, like, a lifetime member and stuff like that. So there's different categories. Of involvedness. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. And if anyone listening wants to join any conservation, all you have to do is look up any, like, local affiliates, and they'll be able to connect you to the people that can help you get enrolled. I think I have heard them speak at like an event before for I think it was an FFA event and it was like at or like the state fairgrounds and they had they were talking about conservation and natural pollinators and stuff like that but I don't know if it was them or not that was a while ago (laughs) it probably was them Um, I don't think a lot of businesses that do like conservation have such of an outreach program as as pheasant forever does so it was probably them. Have you guys tried to do like conservation or like plant natural grasses or anything like that? Right now, Michael and I, so we used to have on the place we live, there used to be trees all the way around. And then the tornado decided that we didn't need those anymore. And so we've just had um, brome grass growing there, but we we really want to put like native grasses and wildflowers and stuff back there. Because it's a nice buffer strip. It's just that the stumps back there, like, you, they're all tipped over and yeah. you can't, like, put them back in the ground. You just have to let them rot. So there's nothing that we can do back there. And, like, we were trying to reestablish a tree, tree break, line. Tree, yep. tree line back there. But trees take forever to grow. So 
Yeah, we're we're trying. Have your trees seen like any cedar rust? Because I know that's been a problem in the last couple years. Not our trees. Okay. So specifically in our area, we haven't noticed a huge um, cedar tree rust problem, but like farther north and south there is, okay. just because some- around us, like more people are taking out those trees anyway. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me what cedar tree rust is? So it's a disease that a tr- a cedar tree will get, and it just causes it to die. Okay. And it's very contagious to other cedar trees. So, like, when you see one cedar tree and, like, um, a row of tree- cedar trees, and one is just turning orange and dying in its middle of summer, you know, that's probably cedar tree rust, and it's probably going to affect the entire tree line. So they call it rust just because it turns that color mm-hmm. then? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. And it kind of, like degrades from the inside so like what rust would do with metal Mm. yeah gotcha but so like by the time you see it it's kind of too late to stop the spread or as far as i know uh, there's not much you can do about it besides take out preventatives okay um well we have some pasture ground that we kind of keep tall for like wildlife so pheasants quail and like deer because it's kind of hilly so mm-hmm. we just keep it kind of natural. We don't have any, we're not enrolled in any like conservation plans or anything, but I would love to have a wildflower strip in our backyard because pollinators are losing their habitat at like a very drastic rate. Also a wild like a wildflower patch would be so pretty too would be the other thing. Like it would it wouldn't even like I know obviously some tall native grasses are not the most attractive, but like sometimes if you like have the right combo it looks really nice. Mm-hmm. So and anyone that's gonna enroll in these programs, they're gonna get help from picking out what to put in yes. and everything like yeah. that. And there's like guidelines of where you are and what would work best as, like, yeah. a native grass. Well, because you're not going to plant the same thing in the sand hills that you would over here. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. And even, like, from county to county, it's going to have different soil. So it might be sandy loam. Mm-hmm. And then it might be clay in the next county. So it just it really depends on what type of land you have that you're trying to be enrolled and what kind of plant you're planting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's – or the cedar tree grass is the actual name. We've always called it that. Yeah, we've always called it that too, but I was just trying to look for it and That's I couldn't find it. Maybe not the scientific reference to it. Yeah, the one that I kept seeing is cedar apple rust, and that's completely different. Mm. Um, that affects like crabapple trees and stuff, and it's not like the tree dying like a cedar tree, like what Whitney and I are mm-hmm. thinking of, where it like just slowly dies, like half the tree's dead, and then the full tree's dead. Yeah. But yeah. Anything else about conservation? I remember, so we went to that conference, and I remember that that was one of the things that I I had called my dad after, and I was like, I learned about this and this and this and this and this and this, and I was pretty sure he was like, can you just stop talking already? But he was like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> but I thought I learned a lot because I didn't know those things before I went, so I thought yeah. it was a cool program and they had some really pretty pictures uh, like examples they had like Mm -hmm. a bunch of example pictures and diagrams and stuff so it was really easy to to learn about and kind of see the benefits of that way because they had the visuals to go along with it so see i learned more about conservation through some of my classes at northeast like soil science and stuff and i think there was kind of an environmental based one where we did learn about like buffer strips and Mm -hmm. all that stuff which are really important, especially right now when everyone's tearing out tree lines and stuff like that. 
Because don't buffer strips also help with, like, water management? Yeah, they mm-hmm. help with water management, erosion. They help with a yeah, lot of stuff. Yeah, that's my other thing was erosion. But so. people are taking them out because they're either too inconvenient to farm around or they just don't find them useful, which I don't know how you can find them not useful. I think but. a lot of people are unwilling to have the patience to let it grow to the potential it needs to be because I think it takes normally, like, Depending on the size, of course, and what you're planting, but like two years to establish it to like the yeah. full potential. And yeah. people well, because they're plants and they have to grow. Like you said, the tree line's not going to grow back overnight. Like no. you have to wait. Yeah, gotta be patient. Yeah. So they don't want to wait the two or however long it's going to take to make it look quote unquote pretty. Well, and it's also taking. It's not even taking that much of a profit out of your land. It's literally helping your land by preventing erosion and stuff. Yeah. But because even like around my area, a lot of farmers are farming the ditch because they took out their fence line. Mm. So they're just getting closer and closer to the road, which is an awful thing because if there's a car accident, they're now in your cornfield, not the ditch, you know. And we've had people like roll their car and it started the cornfield on fire because cars are hot. The car is hot. The field is dry and it just... It's not started a, good combo. a big fire, yeah. and it was like, I mean, if it was a ditch, it still probably would have happened, but would have been easier to get to the car. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we've also, because there used to be a creek that ran through our field, and it's just slowly filled in over time because erosion. And we recently like redug it because it's always wet down there, so you might as well dig a ditch where it can go mm-hmm. instead of spreading out across the field. And we didn't want to do tile because that's, I don't know, it's an expensive option for us, especially when we're renting out the land in the first place. And it's a natural waterbed there, so there's no point in trying to redirect the water. You might as well just let it follow its natural path. But mm-hmm. Do you want to explain what tiling is to some people that may not know? Yeah, <laughs> I only have like the bare minimum, but tiling is basically putting... A bunch of pipes that have little holes with a screen over them so that the water can drain through this pipe from the soil and they can move it elsewhere. So like a lot of people put it into the ditch, a lot of people put it into a pond, a lake or whatever, or a creek, and it dries the soil faster. So like like, there's a wet spot in your field and for whatever reason just never gets dry enough. A lot of people will tile that. And move the water to a different area so that that area can dry up so it's easier to farm. A lot of people will see that in like a clay area where like clay will get packed really hard so then the water will just run off. It's not being absorbed. Um, they You don't really see it often in the sand but you'll see it where the sand stops because obviously water is going to drain really quickly through sand but the it's going to usually around sand I guess in our area it's very clay around it. And so it'll just pool around it and not go into the sand. So people will tile into the sand pit. I like that one thing that's nice about conservation and like these different methods is that it covers more than one problem. Like it helps water management. It helps erosion. You know, you're maybe adding to the soil's content. You're helping wildlife. Like there's more than one benefit. Yeah, it's really beneficial because like especially with those buffer strips, It's not only preventing erosion, it's not only preventing, you know, water erosion and helping with water management, it's creating a healthy environment for these natural, not natural, but um, 
Animals. Animals. Thank you. It's creating an environment for these animals to live so that we can keep a healthy population in the area. The other thing with, like, the buffer strips and the natural environments is the pollinators are really important because then that's not only just helping the plants that are there, but it's also going to help, like, your crops and whatever garden situation you have going on, too. Because, obviously, you need pollinators to help that stuff grow and spread it. So, I'm like, that's another huge benefit as well. And like you mentioned, the decline in populations. The Pheasants Forever, on their website, they have a statistic of declining population. So, 83% of decline in the northern bobwhite quail population from 1966-2017. And then there's been a 70% decline in the American pheasant population since uh, 1970 in almost all the states. And then... Not as bad, but still 53% decline in population of just grassland bird species mm-hmm. since the 70s. Is that because well, of, like, hunting or, like, a combination of their habitat decreasing? Or- I would say, yeah. But also, if you look around, we don't have nearly as many hay fields around here as we used to. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, like, those grass birds will nest in the grass. Yeah. And they'll use a lot of, like, the uh, bulkier grasses like milkweed and stuff stuff. to make nests on that plant and people are spraying them and killing the plants so now the birds don't have anywhere to nest so they're not reproducing Mm -hmm. and there has been a decline in like public land which is used for conservation for them to have a habitat this is totally off topic but your milkweed thing just reminded me of a hilarious story so I I knew a couple guys and they like they thought like milkweed was like there was milk in it and I'll I'll let you imagine how well that turned out. <laughs> oh, that's milkweed's poisonous. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, that was totally off topic, but I just thought I'd sprinkle that in there as a little anecdote. <laughs> well, another thing with milkweed though is like that's a big monarch uh, butterfly. butterfly pollinator, and we haven't seen nearly as many uh, monarchs because people are killing all the milkweed Mm -hmm. so a lot of people are bringing it back in you know their natural landscapes and stuff because it is a pretty plant to me except when it blooms and then it's just white puff balls everywhere Mm -hmm. but also with buffer strips they're really nice like if you have a creek going through your land because then you can put the buffer strips right next to it or let it grow on top of it Mm -hmm. and it'll filter the water that goes down into the creek and it won't fill up your creek with dirt and it also helps create those environments because it's right next to the water so more birds and stuff are likely to nest there and then they can have water access too it's like the perfect living situation and they won't be in your field (laughs) (laughs) win-win yeah so that helps with like harvest time you're not running into the population that might be um in your field no like nesting so they're not gonna be nesting in the middle of your field if you have like corn stalks or mm-hmm. leaves or whatever and so they're not using that portion they're using that habitat that you've created as a buffer strip or your corners instead of ruining your equipment they're safe in yeah. a different spot so another win-win you just can't <laughs> stop winning today guys <laughs> well i think that's all we have to talk about as far as conservation goes so should we move on to current events yeah we're gonna first go back to a couple of questions that we had on the haskell ag lab leslie actually reached out and answered them for us so So that was the episode that we did a couple weeks ago so and we had some questions 
that we asked on the podcast. So Leslie just reached back out to us to kind of clarify a couple things. So yes. So we asked or Whitney asked if um, they do tours and like field trips and stuff for school um, students. And she said that, yes, they do do tours and field trips for students of any age. That's really cool because especially like college students could even go out there and learn more about the environment, learn more about crops and stuff. And then anyone can go out to the Arboretum and you they don't even have to be open. Like you can go up there, you can just drive up there, you can take a look around, you can harvest the apples at harvest time, you can do whatever and just learn about the different types of trees they have up there. Oh, well, I thought that was very interesting and it was very nice for her to reach out to us and answer those questions for us. Yeah. Um, and then I was going to give an update on the John Deere situation. If you haven't caught the last two podcasts, we've talked about this. Um, there's been protests at John Deere that a lot of the workers for UAW, which is the union... United Auto Workers. United Auto Workers. Thank you, Claire. <laughs> um, but they had rejected the first deal and the second deal, and now John Deere has put out a third final deal. So we're going off the three strikes, you're out type of policy. Yes. Well, um, another one of the articles I read from the Des Moines Register said that Usually when they use that language, it means that they're at a standstill, basically, where mm -hmm. the company doesn't want to give anymore, but the UA workers don't want to accept, accept anymore. Less. But this third deal is going to be voted on November 17th, which is oh, this Wednesday for us. This third offer would um, allow the cost of living adjustments for every three months of inflammation inflation sorry basically that means as inflation increases so will their wages and then the company funded defined benefit pension plan and defined contribution plan or 401k to create more security in retirement so that means in retirement they will receive a monthly pension payment from john deere and the benefits of tax deferred savings bolstered by the company um i'm getting this stuff off of agdaily.com and they're getting it off of the John Deere website, just so if anyone else just is so curious. Just so we can follow. Um, and then an entire new cash balance saving to provide more retirement income and flexibility. So this means that employees will receive tens of thousands of dollars more to spend after their career at John Deere. I don't, I'm assuming that they're also keeping like the stuff from the second offer, like the 10% increase on mm -hmm. wages and stuff. Um, but this, this is just the stuff they've added. Yeah. There's also, they are doing paid paternal leave. So maternal and paternal are mm -hmm. both going to get paid leave. That vision care. Nice. That's also nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, vision care is transitioned from every 24 months to every 12 months. And then they also have autism care coverage in this new offer. And then the last offer was like a pretty close vote already, wasn't it? Yeah, it was... Declined 55% to 45. That's what I thought. Right? That's what yeah. I thought. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure that's what you said. math real quick. Um, but John Deere is basically like, if they don't accept this, we don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Because this is what they're wanting as far as they want to go. Yeah. And as far as um, updates go or like benefits go, this is really nice compared to what a lot of other companies have done. Yeah, that's true. So we'll just have to wait and see what tomorrow brings about it. Yeah. We don't know until don't know until um, they vote, I guess. This Ag Daily article says that this is the first strike at John Deere in thirty five years when workers walked out for hundred and sixty three days in the nineteen eighties farm crisis. So like that's a pretty long time without, you know, any, any negotiation strikes. stuff either, yeah. But 
Yeah, we'll see what, well, what comes mean, out of it tomorrow. I we guess. thought we thought they would accept the first plane because we thought the first plane was pretty good, but obviously, obviously, we were wrong. <laughs> right, and then I was like, "There's no way they would turn out the second one," and then they turned out that one. I'm like, oh, you guys, so dangerous ground. But we'll see yeah. because the first one, um, the first one was declined by ninety percent, mm-hmm. and the second one by fifty five percent. So it either it's gonna be they, real they, close. They closed that gap pretty quickly though. Yeah, because it went from ninety to fifty five. So that's a pretty pretty large. So I mean, if they do the same thing this time, yeah, I I think they'll be set. Yeah, and I mean, what this article tells me, it seems like they they've really upped their offer. Like, I mean, I thought their first to second offer was like a huge jump but this one is even bigger Mm -hmm. so i guess we'll have to see what they vote and probably next podcast we'll have to update again (laughs) but i have a feeling they're gonna accept this third offer i do too um just because again it was so close last time it wouldn't make sense not to not to but then again you know their their whole thing from last week when we read that article was to cause the company you know not necessarily pain but to lose some ego (laughs) I suppose. So for my current event, I am reading an article about the Pennsylvania Department of Ag. They're taking steps towards banning an invasive Japanese barberry. So it's it's been like a popular ornamental shrub for like a while and they spread really easily. So the Japanese barberry has been known as an invasive species for a decade and like Massachusetts banned them way back in 2009. So other states that like banned this shrub also has been like New York, Maine, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and West Virginia. So is this kind of like a northeast, yes. northeast United States I had to visualize issue. that, but yes. Okay. It would be and like then, a north. What, 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 where are you finding this information? I'm finding this from WFMZ TV 69 News. So it's a... I'm pretty sure based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Like a local news affiliate, basically. And so Pennsylvania, the Department of Ag, is taking steps for banning the sale and cultivation of this noxious weed. So it's been popular for, like, landscapes because of the color and the size and how manageable it was. But it's slowly but surely spreading. Mm -hmm. What does it look like, out of curiosity? Oh, Okay, it looks like it has little tomatoes with red dragonflies. Isn't that what it looks like? Yeah. It looks like little long, like this long cherry tomatoes, and then the leaves on it look like red butterflies or dragonflies. Yeah, well, they almost, I, the I leaves gotcha. almost look like um, a cherry blossom, but like darker. Yeah. More like leaf instead of petal. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so, do, like, where would people buy that from? Like, is it just at, like, plant nurseries, or do they just, like, buy it off well, other people? if it's declared invasive, you won't be able to buy it anymore. Well, I know, but, but like, where were they? I would assume nurseries. Because if, you, if you're doing landscaping and stuff, you're going to go to. Yes, um, I guess. So they can't put the nixay on that. Gotta throw that stuff out. So, like, nurseries and it. other landscape businesses. So they, the... Article says that nurseries and the businesses would be receiving a notice at the beginning of November mm. saying that they can't like order or new or sell any other plants that they might have in stock. And then by the fall of 2023, 
There's going to be a stop of sale and destruction of orders for these Japanese Japanese barberries. So then do like people that have them planted, will they have to remove them from their property or how how will that be handled? Or do you know? That should be how it's supposed to be like any noxious or any type of weed, just like uh, muff thistles. Dig it out and... You'd have to dig it out and chuck burn it, it, burn yep. it, properly dispose of them. Um, on the topic of invasive species, um, so... Lately, um, especially on the East Coast, specifically Pennsylvania, Virginia, Delaware, Maryland, and New Jersey, are dealing with spotted lanternflies, which are a decent-sized bug, and they're brown with black spots, and then when they open their wings, it's like red and black with a white line. Okay. But they're very invasive, and it says, like, although it's not present in Nebraska, it's important to be vigilant. Vigilant because they are they're one of the largest threats to American agriculture and trees in decades is what the wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's what the Nebraska Forest Service says by uh, UNL. So like what I guess what do they do to like hurt things? You know what I mean? Like do they eat it? Do they like use it to like nest in and there's a bunch of holes in it and it dies? So does it light up? Why is it called a lantern? No, no. Well, (laughs) I'm assuming it's because when it opens its wings, it's red. So it's like so it looks bright. Like a lantern. Oh, yeah. Whitney can show a picture. Oh, it's like bright, them. bright red. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Almost like a ruby red. I'm still sad that they don't light up. It says that eggs will be laid on any hard surface. Surface, sorry. But their favorite host is a tree of heaven. Um, I don't know what that tree is. I'm just assuming it's a tall tree. <laughs> it's probably native to the east coast then because i've never heard of it either <laughs> did you like my description um <laughs> it looked like a regular tree. any hard surface is a is a lot of different things do they breed like super quickly in a lot like bugs like bugs be doing in general you know <laughs> um it says they host a huge risk to fruit crop as well as hardwood trees because they suck the sap oh. i think uh, eggs can be present year-round, but are most observable between October and May, and nymphs usually hatch out sometime between May, maturing into adults around early August, and will end up lasting until November when, you know, the lay eggs start over again. They also host on, like, fruit trees and, like, grapevines, so that would also make sense for the East Coast. Yeah. That would be really bad for, like, wineries, though, if they're on grapevines. Oh, yeah. like, can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Or they, even... They'd do so well in California. They're, <laughs> they're in the same, like, family species as cicadas and aphids. Oh. Okay. But cicadas aren't invasive. No, no, no. Mm-mm. Those are native. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like, they're in the same family, but cicadas are cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're not the evil cousin who's trying to... <laughs> crash the party you know what i mean yeah. they're the cool uncles <laughs> who are a little annoying but we put up with it that was a great description claire thank you <laughs> so where are they from then like where 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 are they they're indigenous from? to parts of china india and vietnam okay so like and, asian then yep and so, they spread really quickly because they travel mostly by clinging on to something and then like moving okay so like a lot of they're moving quickly through like landscaping because or like nurseries, because once they get on something, they just latch on, and then uh-huh. it moves to a new area. So is there like a way to kill them, or you just gotta kind of? Well, yes. Well, they have some enemies—not enemies, but like predators. Yes, natural thank predators. You. But um, if you see, enemies, especially enemies. like on the <laughs> enemy has an enemy. 
<laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. Continue, but like, Agnes. I see mostly like on the coast, like through you know the internet, people will take like a water bottle and like suck them through, like squeeze the bottle and then like put, like pop them into the water bottle, like it's an empty water bottle. But and then they put the lid on and suffocate yeah, them. Suffocate them because but that's like a one at a time thing. That's not very effective. But is they're it? not like moving. You know, like they're just sitting on a tree. Like if you watch some of these videos. They'll just stick the bottle over them and, like, pop them in. And there's still, like, 20 on the tree, like, Ugh. not paying attention at all. Gross. It's like, mm. wow. That you know? Nasty. I didn't know if they had, like, a like a spray or, you know, the wasp be gone type of thing for them. I don't know. Since they're not such an invasive throughout, like, the whole United States, they don't, I don't think they'll have, like, any biochemicals to fight them off yeah it has also to been, target the oh, enemy these, these have also been found in ohio it says but Ooh. not yet in nebraska okay, okay. Oh, sir. um this one is from nebraska nursery and landscape association this article mm. they're about an inch in length with gray forewings with wings that have or those wings have black spots on the upper half and narrow black rectangles on the lower half and then the wing under wings are red with black wingtips that's such an easier description than what I just said earlier. So do they like, are they like trying to prevent the spread by like stopping certain movements or are they just kind of like we'll deal with it when it gets here type of thing? Like is there any preventative measures being put in? I don't oh, like the face that you just made. <laughs> sorry, I just read that it's, it feeds on over 65 different plants, Ugh. including uh, grapes, fruit trees, oaks, walnut trees, and even pine trees. Making the pest the most concerned in Nebraska. Of concern, not most, but yeah. of concern. Um, because they prefer to host on the tree of heaven that I mentioned before. And if that was the only tree, then it wouldn't be like a, a problem. problem. But we don't have those here, apparently. We don't have a lot of those. So, But they feed on 65 other different plants. <laughs> so they're not picky is what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. Um, they feed on plant sap. Like many other leaf hoppers, so like cicadas, mm. they'll eat the sap out of your tree. Do they leave shells like cicadas? No. Ugh, boring. <laughs> boring. Next. <laughs> Next. Not interested. <laughs> if I can't make your exoskeleton into a cool shirt pin, you're dead to me. <laughs> oh my gosh. We did that with cicadas <laughs> when you were younger too. You like come on to your shirt. shirt, and then whoever had the most won. <laughs> You never did you that? Didn't do that? You no. go around and you gotta find culture. all these shells. Yeah, you go and find shells and you hook them on your shirt, and then mom counts them all, and whoever has the most on their shirt oh, no. is the winner. We did this That's in our disgusting. class. In our class, we'd like have outside recess because we did that back then. We didn't have we didn't have trees at our outside recess. So we, we did couldn't. really. Oh, yeah. we had like so many trees, and you would go, and then we'd have like I don't know, like ten or fifteen of us would go and search all the trees. And then you'd have to find all the cicadas. And one time we find found a cicada that was actually molting. That was pretty cool. I like when you find the ones that are like on the ground and then like they're upside down and then you like poke them and they go, like, you know how they like spin around really fast and make that noise? That reminds me of like, uh, zips. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it reminds me of too. Like That's from the 4th of July. Entertaining. Yeah. yeah. The fireworks. Mm-hmm entertains me i haven't uh back to the you know sorry i kind of got off topic it's, there it's good um but back to them lantern flies i haven't seen anything that says like here's a spray mm-hmm. you know yeah probably because if you got a spray for them it would also kill the natural other stuff 
na- like native insects. That's true. true but true. yeah, it, interesting. So be on the lookout for for those guys because that's not a good thing. This article from A to Z Animals says the lanternflies, after they consume the sap, like you mentioned, they release a liquid called called honeydew, and then the liquid is harmful because it attracts other destructive insects which then weakens the tree's defense against like mold and other diseases so then that can take over and is then they like, die is that why did why would they do that though because why not is I'm that sorry. like their is that like their pee or something or i don't know is it just, it just says, they just release releases it. a liquid i don't like that they called it honeydew either that's now i'm not gonna be able to eat honeydew <laughs> Okay, this article says that it has been found in uh, Kansas. It's Ooh. from September uh, 2021 from harvestpublicmedia.org. Um, it actually compares it to a emerald ash borer and says, oh, like, yeah. by comparison, the emerald ash borer is a picky pest, which... Oh, wonderful. Uh, so I so wonder how it got picky. to Kansas, because everything else was kind of, like, northeast, but Kansas is south of us. I don't remember where it was. But I saw, like, a map, and it, it shows, like, it is all the way, like, it says Nebraska should be watching for okay. them, because it's, like, it it's hit Ohio. It's obviously not just sticking to Ohio. Ohio. Wow. It's obviously not just sticking to Ohio. Yeah. So, it's probably, like, the whole Midwest okay. should be paying attention now. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, but, yeah. Well, that's pretty gross. This article says that praying mantises and, like, chickens are, like, the top two predators. predators. Yeah. Because chickens will eat anything. We're going into December. Do you remember the other day we saw a praying mantis when yeah. we were walking back to the pile? Yeah. Mm-mm. Do you remember that? He was on the I tree, remember? And I was like, Ooh. Oh, that was a no, while ago. No, he was on the ago. sidewalk. Oh, yeah, and then we moved the into the tree. That was like two that. months ago. You don't remember that? that no, I do. That was a pivotal moment in my life. <laughs> I do. It's just, that was like two months ago. We need more We need more free-range chickens to eat these, what? is what I'm hearing. I think Wayne should start like a little farm. So that we can be preventative to these lanterns. You know flies. what? Yeah, okay. You know what? For would, sure. You know what would be hilarious? So Wayne has chicken days, right? Yeah. Oh. What if? Hear me out. Hear me out. What if we made like a giant paper mache lantern fly and then like lit it on fire <laughs> and oh then be gosh. like, the chickens have destroyed you. Would that not be <laughs> so funny? Can we, okay. But can we like, okay, make a big paper mache, um, Make a big paper mache lantern bug, and then like cover it in like chicken seat, like chicken feed or something. And then all the and chickens then, will eat and it. And then release the chicken mageddon. I love that. <laughs> that is also a great idea. I think we should take this to the president, and <laughs> we the- need to call up Mayor Kale and tell him our <laughs> ideas. <laughs> oh, there, he'll be like, "What's a lantern fly?" And then we can educate him, or be like, "Listen to our podcast, and you would know." I think that's a genius idea. I absolutely love that segue. So since this is our Thanksgiving episode, we figured that we would, you know, give some uh, Thanksgiving facts and then maybe talk about what we're going to be doing for Thanksgiving this year. Um, So to begin with, this article is from agdaily.com and um, it just is by Michelle Miller, who is also known as Farm Babe on, like, Facebook and everywhere. This is from 2016, so some of the facts might be different now, but (laughs) it's still relatively um, recent. recent. So, 
Wisconsin is obviously like the cheese world, right? Wisconsin. <laughs> but they produce 60% of all the nation's cranberries. Oh, really? Which is, cra- I don't, I'm not a huge like cranberry person. See, I like cranberries and like cookies. I, my grandma makes like, I think it's called like cranberry relish. So it's basically like the consistency of like relish, but with cranberries and it's like sweet. Huh. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I, one of my brothers really likes like the canned cranberry mm-hmm. like stuff. Not yeah. a fan. Not yeah. a fan. But cranberry fields are weird though, because aren't those one where you have to have like the thigh high boots and like wade through it? <laughs> you know? I have no yeah. idea. Well, that's well, because they have you flood. seen the ocean spray oh, commercials right. where they're like, and then it's like the guy and his like son or son-in-law, yeah. and they're like talking like ocean spray cran lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because they flood the fields, and that's how they it harvest pops it. Up, yeah, yeah. It, there's not like a rice field where they grow in the water. Well. Wow. It's still different from what you would normally <laughs> yeah. see, is my point. Any other facts, Agnes? Uh, 20% of those cranberries that are produced, which is about 841 million, uh, 20% of that is consumed on Thanksgiving week. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's crazy. Which, I mean, I guess that's probably similar that with turkey and That kind of makes sense, because but... I guess I don't really eat cranberries other than on Thanksgiving, or if like I would have cranberry juice. Those are like the two times I consume cranberry yeah, <laughs> products me too. me too green beans i'm a fan love green bean casserole i i don't like green bean casserole my mom makes green beans with like almonds and honey and bacon that's the way to go <laughs> green bean casserole is subpar compared to that okay <laughs> but um about one and a half billion pounds are also produced in wisconsin which is again leading in production mm-hmm uh, according to the Guinness World Records, the largest pumpkin pie was baked in new by was baked by new Bremen pumpkin growers of Ohio back in 2010, estimated to weigh about 3,700 3, pounds and was 20 feet in diameter. Was it cooked? I would assume There's so. Just, how would you even do that? <laughs> they probably had to make an oven like outside specifically for that pie. Honestly, seems like an expensive endeavor. Or they could have done something like modified a kiln, like what people what use for just, pottery. What if, what if, what if they just had like a low blowtorch and there was like 800 people just like <laughs> who had like a section that they were supposed to blowtorch? Oh, <laughs> That's how I'm going to imagine it because that's funnier. <laughs> uh, Minnesota is the top producing turkey state and American farmers produce more than 200 53 million turkeys each year, and over 46 million are eaten on Thanksgiving. Yeah, I was going to say again, the one time a year I have turkey is on Thanksgiving. Unless you have like a turkey sandwich or something. But Yeah, I'll have like, like cooked, deli like, sandwich baked or something. Turkey but, is yeah. like a Thanksgiving thing. We eat turkey year round because we do hunt them. So, like, fall season right now is open since like fi- September 15th to like the end of January. So, January 31st. So, like, there's been some years where we're waiting for Thanksgiving dinner to be cooked or Christmas, and we're, like, it's taking too long, so we'll go out and hunt and, like, bring it back. And one year, something fell through, so we just ate that turkey that we had hunted that morning, and we ate that for dinner. Well. So what's everybody doing? I, usually on Thanksgiving Day, like, we'll only have, like, immediate family, but a lot of, like, our immediate family is like going to their other like families families or they're working so um we usually also have like a we call it the bromester 
reunion meal kind of thing where we um it's my mom and her sister uh and the sister's kids and my cousins and stuff they were are going to come over to our house and all my brothers and stuff are going to come home and then we'll have a big meal have some ham turkey uh cheesy potatoes you know Mm -hmm. signature thanksgiving dishes yeah i actually have both of my families are doing thanksgiving on thanksgiving day at noon so i get to choose which side of the family i guess i get to spend the holiday with but my dad's parents are hosting it, which are closest to us in their garage. And it's going to be our extended family on that side. And then my mom's parents are hosting it for her side because she has like seven siblings. So there's like 20 of a, 25 of us cousins or whatever. I stopped counting. Mm-hmm. It's always a big meal because all of us, it's about one of the only times we get to see each other mm-hmm. other than Christmas. A lot of the my aunts and uncles come down just a lot of good food, a lot of pie. Hopefully my great-grandma's going to make some pecan pie because that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. But how about oh. you? You say pe- pecan? Yeah, pecan. Pecan. Yeah, um. I say pecan usually. <laughs> no, it's pecan. Okay. So my <laughs> Thanksgiving plans is my dad's parents and my mom's parents are going to come to our house and we're just going to have a noon meal and kind of hang out after that. But also the other fun thing we do over Thanksgiving weekend is we decorate gingerbread houses. Um, So I will be very, very busy doing that. And it is my favorite time of the year. And my aunt will literally buy so much candy that it's actually a little ridiculous. We have like (laughs) a whole table, like my dining room table is packed like across. There's containers stacked like that's how much there is. And there's two more totes of the extra. (laughs) Like, wow. that's how much there is. And so every time I, I always make fun of her because she'll just, like, bring over totes and totes and totes. And I'll be like, I don't know. I think we could use a little more. We might run out this year. <laughs> Does she buy them at, like, Halloween time when it's on sale? Well, it's kind of like a year-round thing. Because okay. some of them are obviously, like, Christmas-specific candies, such as North Poles. Like, you can only find them after thanksgiving you have never had a north pole before. i don't know what those are they're no. like marshmallow sticks but they're like fruity hmm. i'll buy you some at dollar tree anyway <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but it's it's so much fun and i love doing it and it's just like really fun because then i can give them to all my friends and be like hey i have a treat for you and then you can actually eat it and use it so it's really fun. And when my brother does them, he always has, like, some ridiculous story to go along with it. And, of course, he's older now, so he, like, has to pretend that he doesn't like it. But he <laughs> loves it. We all know he does. So do you actually use, like, the gingerbread, like, base or do you use, like, graham crackers? No, no, no. My mom bakes gingerbread. Oh, okay. Yep. She she has it. She already has everything baked because it has to, like, have time to dry out mm-hmm. so it'll be stable, basically. So she did all of that last week. Wow. So. She was busy, huh? She, she well, she was busy. She's you know my mom. She's like the baker. She's always got something going on. <laughs> if you come to my house, it literally smells like like cookies all the time. And it's, it's not it's a scentsy or anything. It's the best. It's like real life cookies <laughs> making that smell. But anyways, so that's my plans. <laughs> well, I hope every all of our listeners have a good Thanksgiving. Uh, we're gonna wrap up the podcast and. We only have one one podcast left before the end of the semester, and then we'll be back in the spring term. So that will probably be sometime in January. Mm -hmm. But 
Thanks for listening and have a safe Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Ag Knowledge. This podcast was created by Agnes Kurtzels, Claire Horning, and Whitney Winter as part of Radio Production Workshop at Wayne State College. Tune in on Thursdays at 5 p.m. for more Ag Knowledge and listen to KWSC 91.9 The Cat on the TuneIn app. Previous episodes can be found on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. New episodes are released on Fridays to these and other platforms. Music is Surf Day by Marcos H. Blanos, found on freemusicarchives.org. The song was edited for the use of this podcast.